our scripture this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, before we jump into that text, let us, let us pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word that you've spoken to guide us into life, to make us wise into salvation. And so now as we, as we open your scriptures, uh, Spirit, use your scriptures to speak into our lives, I pray, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, to be a community, you have to answer two questions. Who are we? And what is it like to act like us? To give you an example, uh, I'm a part of a, a family, a, an immediate family, the Spanbergs. We call ourselves the Span Clan. And for about eight years, it was, it was me and three boys. It was an all-male endeavor, with the exception of my wife, Misty. And that, this was, uh, for someone uh, in Misty who grew up without a brother, uh, she had to, to work to understand the male species. Uh, and I use the word species, and I think male, men and women are that different. There's two species. And, and she just, just, so I had to help her understand. We're, we're the Span clan, pr primarily boys, and that means that we fight, we yell, and we pee in the yard. <laughs> it was this third thing that she had a hard time understanding. And I was like, no, this is actually a completely normal human experience for a boy to desire to do this. She was not convinced of this. But this, is, this, this went about for seven, eight years. But then, a couple of years ago, we had a new introduction into our family, which is Eden, our girl. So now we are still the Spanbergs. We still fight. We still yell. But we have many restrictions about where we pee now. <laughs> because she is a, she's a, an aspiring woman and doesn't quite understand the freedom and joy that you're able to have as a boy in the backyard with 
a tree. So every community has to answer two questions. Don't judge me, all right? I don't. <laughs> every community must answer two questions. Who are we? And what is it like to act like us? And if, if we as a church, we are a community, it means we have to answer those two questions about us. Who are we? And what does it mean to act like us? And that's what we're going to, we're going to apply those two questions to this text, which seems a little boring because it's just, it's travel logistics. That's all this text is. And yet in the midst of travel logistics, you get, you get very, a very important glimpse into what the church community is supposed to be. So who are we as Christians? And Paul names uh, two friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what he says about both is informative about who we are as a community. So first, here's what Paul says about Timothy in verse 22. But you, the church in Philippi, you know Timothy. You know his proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So Paul views Timothy and his relationship as father to son. So Paul, Paul defines his relationship to Timothy, father to son. Then later he speaks of Epaphroditus in verse 25. He says this, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. The first word he chooses to use to describe Epaphroditus is brother. Epaphroditus, my brother. And this is not a, an exception to Paul. Paul's primary term to identify fellow uh, Christians is the Greek word adelphoi. Now, some tra most translations, or at least most of the older translations, translate that only as brothers, which is a myth. It's actually sibling. It's brothers and sisters. He's, he, Paul's primary identification towards fellow Christians is sibling. His brother is sister. So who are we as a church? According to Paul's own language, we are family. We are siblings. And when Paul sits down to speak of two fellow workers along with him, Timothy and Epaphroditus, he uses family terms. Brother, Adelphoi, father to, to son. This is, this, is, uh, this is more radical than even uh, what you're thinking right now. To think that your primary siblings are not the siblings you grew up with in your own home, but actually the people in this room, it, that, that seems radical enough. It's actually even more radical than that, because how the ancient world viewed siblings. So the ancient world, uh, when Jesus, when Paul wrote, uh, was a patriarchal society, which meant you primarily assumed your family through your father's line. So your primary relationships what, is what came through your father's line, your siblings, not your immediate nuclear family, not your spouse and not your own children. Your primary relationship was your siblings. So, for example, and this is going to be a very dark example, and I apologize, but Herod the Great, uh, who was a well-known uh, leader, uh, is in the Bible. He was uh, a leader um, just as Jesus was coming into the world. Uh, was very, he, was, he was not a good person, and he murdered lots of people, including his own family. And there's one moment in his life where there was a conflict between a wife who he, he was very romantically attached to, Marianne, whom he loved very deeply, and, and even in a day when marriages weren't always based in romance, he was very, he loved Marianne. But his sister, Salome, hated Marianne, and the, the feud sort of grew into such uh, an intense reality 
that Salome asked Herod to, to get rid of Marianne. And so in our own culture, if we were to process, who do I choose, my sister or my wife, it's no-brainer. We choose my wife, right? That's our nuclear family is primary. That's not what Herod did. Herod actually killed the wife that he loved to serve his sister because that is, the, now that was a very dark example, and I, again, I apologize for that. But that, that is what was the, the ancient world was like, is you, your primary identification was your siblings, which is why Paul chooses that word for the primary identification for us as Christians. The mo- in other words, the most important relationship in the ancient world that existed for you or for them, that's the term Paul used into the life and community of the church. We are to be siblings. Let's let that sit for a minute. We are, you and I are to be brothers and sisters. That's who we are. Now, that raises lots of questions. So if we, if, if we are brothers and sisters, then what, what does that mean? What does it mean to act like us? And, and, and I want to press into that question, but, but first, just by, like, again, so any community, like, there's just certain baseline expectations about how you are to act in order to be a part of that community. And we have those as church, as Christians as well. So, for example, if you got invited to join a chief's tailgating party, a chief's tailgating group community, and you were to say to them, listen, I don't, I, just, I need you to know that I'm not available on Sundays and I am a vegetarian. That community is not going to be interested in having you be a part of their group. Because part of being a chief's tailgating community is that you're there every Sunday and you're eating ribs at 6 a.m. That's just how, that's what that community, that's how you act if you're in a chief's tailgating community. So what are those things for us as Christians? And obviously there's lots of things, but I want to, as best we can, narrow into this, again, this travel log. How what we see, Paul's basic assumptions about what it means to be a sibling and act together in the life of the community. And I want to start with what Paul says in verses 20 and 21 when he's talking about Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all, and here Paul's speaking to uh, to, to teachers that are not embodying the way of Jesus very well right now. He's talking about teachers he's not fans of. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we do as a community is we pursue the interests of Jesus. His interests are our interests. Which raises the question, well, what are Jesus' interests? And I, I'm, I'm actually, I don't, I don't, I don't want to answer that question, I just want you to think through, what, what, is, what is Jesus interested in? And how much does that align with what you're interested in? Because ultimately, churches begin to die when they begin to be interested in things that are, I don't find Jesus particularly interested in. Fighting battles you don't really find Jesus fighting. Getting passionate about things that Jesus is not particularly passionate about. And that's been one of my own just reading through the Gospel of Luke in this year of, of pandemic has been a really good highlighting moments of dissonance between my life and what I'm interested in and what Jesus was clearly interested in in the Gospel of Luke. And hopefully some of those things have come out in the last few months as we've gone through those, um, of those chapters as we went through that Gospel. But that's just, that, that's just a question more so than, than, hey, let me give you the answers. Because the text this morning at least doesn't really give many of those answers other than obviously 
Paul alludes to something he's already talked about in Philippians 2, which is that the, the church's vision and interests are that other interests come before our own. That's what, what he describes Timothy as, is he cares more about your, your interests, Philippians, your, your interests as a church than his own. But we as a church, we care about what Jesus cares about. We're interested in what he is interested in. That's first and foremost. But I want to spend most of our, our time there. That's more, think that out. Work that out in your own life. The second thing that, that's, that's clear in this passage is that, that the church is a community that embraces sacrificial risk. Uh, one of my favorite books, and later became a, uh, a miniseries, is Band of Brothers, which was written by Stephen Ambrose, and it's the story of Easy Company in World War II. And these guys, uh, they were incredible. And basically, their, their, their work was to, to fly over the German front line and then be dropped down into enemy territory and then fight their way out. And their role within the war was crucial to the, the Allied forces winning the war, ultimately. And so Ambrose tells the story of, of how these men basically got together, formed a community, and then did enormously difficult tasks together, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, were, were one of the first... Uh, military people to liberate concentration camps. They saw awful things. They encountered awful things. And yet they, they did all of those things in a powerful way. And, and Ambrose writes this about these men. He says, They also found in combat the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They found selflessness. They found they could love the other guy in their foxhole more than themselves. They found that, uh, they found that in war, men who loved life would give their lives for them. And this is what you see playing out in Philadelphia, or in, in the letter to the Philippians, which is Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus all sacrificing great, uh, their own personal health, their own wealth, their own safety, in order to serve the church. So uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they both have made the journey from Philippi to Rome. The reason we have this letter is the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to go visit Paul in Rome in prison, which was a long journey, a dangerous journey. Just to, to give you some, uh, just some, some uh, illustrations, like there, there were not quick trips back then, which meant if you got halfway there and it's like, I need, I need to pick me up, I'm going to go get like 100 ounces of soda. You couldn't do that. You had to keep walking. I mean, th there, were, there were thieves along the road. Travel was incredibly dangerous in that day. And yet both, so first, Epaphroditus makes the journey to Rome. He gets to Rome. He sees Paul in prison. He visits Paul in prison, and then Paul says, I need both you and Timothy, both Epaphroditus and Timothy, you both need to go back to Philippi. You both need to go make that journey. And they make it willingly because they so love this Philippian church. They want to take this letter from Paul to serve Paul, to serve the Philippian church, to take this journey that was incredibly dangerous. Paul himself is a man in prison facing execution in a, in a, in a deep, dark dungeon cell, all to serve the interests of the church. I mean, I could ask like a, real, like a really probing question, which is, what have you lost to serve the church? What have you risked to serve the church? I won't ask that because that might, that's hard, right? I went to China in, in 2017, and one of my big takeaways from those two trips was, I, I feel like the American context of Christianity feels like a completely different religion than what I experienced in China. Because there was a community, a brotherhood, a connection, an understanding that we could be arrested at any time for what we're doing. Uh, this isn't safe. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is dangerous. 
And, and listen, it was by no means perfect, because no human community is, but the amount of time they spent together, the, the cost and sacrifice they gave to one another, their spirit of hospitality serving us Westerners, it just felt like a different religion. And I wonder, like, if I actually, if I actually practice Christian community in the way I'm experiencing it right now in China, and ultimately what leads to this sort of sacrificial risk that we see in this passage is, is a community of joy. That's what Stephen Ambrose was saying in Band of Brothers, is these men loved each other to such an extent they could do incredibly difficult things together. They could embrace incredible risk with one another. And obviously we've been looking at Philippians through the, the context of joy. And one of the things that, that we know about joy is when a community has a lot of joy, they will go out and embrace sacrificial risk together. So there's a man named Jim Wilder. He's written a lot on joy. He's written uh, a book now called Rare Leadership in the Workplace, which is a book on how to create a culture of joy within your workplace. But he says this in that book, passion, love, and sacrifice are all natural outgrowths of a joy-fueled culture. People will do hard things and make great sacrifices when they have joy in their relationships. So when I say as a church community, we need to be people who embrace sacrificial risk that starts with us being a community of joy together, which then should lead to great sacrifice for one another and for God's church. So who are we? We are siblings. We're brothers. We're sisters. How do we act? We pursue the interests of Jesus. We um, embrace sacrificial risk. But all of this is driving to, to where I want to spend most of our time, which is the, the last way that, that I want to talk about what it's like to act like or what it's like for us to act like us, is we need to be committed to presence with one another. And one of the things that's just so clear in Paul's writing in this moment is he cares deeply about being in physical proximity with the Philippian church. For him, a letter is not a substitute for pr physical presence, which is why you see him in a number of ways uh, laying out his desire to go and see these Christians. He says, I hope therefore to send him, send Timothy, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I want to get Timothy to you fast. And I trust in the Lord that I, shortly I myself will come also. I'm I'm, I want to get to you guys. That's what he's saying. And he moves on. He says uh, something very similar with, with Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker. Then verse 28, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less Anxious. There's something about physical embodied presence that is really significant to Paul. And what I want to do, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I was asked recently, what do you think is the greatest threat to, uh, to Christianity in this moment? I don't really know. I, who knows? Like, God only knows that. But one threat I'm really concerned about is, is digital community, replacing physical embodied presence. And so just a quick aside, there, there are some folks watching this online. Maybe our internet was down this weekend, so maybe you're not. Maybe nothing's happened. Um, but uh, um, if, you're, like, if you're still in a place where you're worshiping at home because of, of concerns over COVID, protecting the vulnerable, we totally respect that. None of what I'm about to say is meant uh, to shame or guilt you in your own decisions in this moment. Um, but COVID really it accelerated trends that were already happening, which is people removing themselves from physical embodied presence and replacing that with digital community, feeling more connected to people you don't know in person, to people with whom you see on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And one of the things that we are not as a church, when we ask who we are as a church, we are not a product to consume, ultimately. And I want to I push into that. Actually, I had someone, um, someone send me uh, an article this week that I actually want to read a good, a good chunk of, which I normally wouldn't do, but, but he says what I want to say, and maybe we can, you can pretend that he's saying it, not me, um, in this moment. But even, even the context of how this was sent to me, it was sent uh, to me um, by someone who, like, we, we probably disagree on everything about masks, except for the fact that masks are an unfair burden on, on bearded people. It's not funny. I mean, like, last night we had our Sunday night forum, and I got up and talked. We, we put chairs off in the side, and all, all my wife... You know, we talk about COVID all night and how we respond as a church. And her first comment to me was, that mask, like, makes your beard look really weird. And it's because it pushes it in, like, up here and then out there, like, flares out. So I end up with, like, just, like, either I'm starting a new trend or I need to shave my beard or something. But if that's the only thing we agree on about masks is, is it's, it's, a, it's just doing violence to bearded people. We don't agree on anything else, I don't think. Uh, but he sent me this because this is... This is something that's really important and why even through the midst of disagreement, he's fought for physical presence in his own, his own life. It's by a guy named Michael Foster, and he, uh, he says this in, at length. And again, I'm, I'm going to read a lengthy quote because these are the things I'm really concerned about as a pastor. He writes this. Many Christians go to conferences, listen to podcasts, and download MP3s. They listen to speakers who seem superior to their local pastor. These speakers are tracking with all the hot theological trends and issues. They are more charismatic, funnier, incredible communicators. Many Christians are deeply involved in Facebook groups and other online forums where they fellowship with other Christians. They get encouragement and process through life's challenges in these online communities. These groups can be curated and pruned so that they include only those that they see eye to eye with. They are excited by the same theological issues and hip to the same references. This can and does distort a Christian's expectation of what a local church should be like. They come to believe that every church should have a dynamic and godly pastor that is an incredible communicator. Now, thankfully, you have that, so we're all grateful <laughs> for that. And, thank, and think that every church community should come easy and be filled with like-minded people. Never mind that these, many, these uh, many local pastors have small staffs, multiple sermons, lessons they must prepare in a given week besides all the other demands of the ministry to contend with. Never mind that the godliness of the conference speakers is exaggerated in the mind of the listeners because they don't see them during the bad days and weak moments. This allows them to assume that the stage persona is how he is all the time. The local pastor isn't afforded that luxury. People see his kids misbehave and have seen him argue with his wife on a few occasions. This encourages them to idolize those who they don't know and despise those who they do know. They long for a pastor who isn't real. The same is true for the community in the local church. You simply can't unfriend or block annoying people. You rarely are surrounded with people that are just like you in every way and share all the same interests. Moreover, it takes more effort to develop flesh and blood relationships with people in the local church. You have to make time to get together. You can't just log in. Nothing is immediate, and everything takes time. The local church is costly. It is awkward. After we, we planted this, this campus about six years ago, one question I, I really began to ask was, what, what exactly are we doing here? Who are we? 
Because there's this sense that the church, what the church ultimately is, is we create products for people to consume. So my sermons had better be good. You better enjoy consuming what I'm doing right now. The music had better be good. You better enjoy consuming what we, we do. And when you're a mobile church that's just starting, a lot of those things are very difficult to, to actually do in meaningful, meaningful ways. But, but is, that what we, like, is that who we are? Do we create events and products for then people to to consume. And what, what I've realized is there are a lot of people that is what they want from church. They want something to be given, something to be consumed. And the idea of church is family, as much as we all love that and resonate with that, when it comes down to the actual, the actual moments when that becomes true, that's hard to want. It's hard for me to want, as someone who's preaching on it right now, it's hard for you to want. When it comes to actually embodying what it means that we are brother and sister. So one of the most uh, formative books I've, I've read around this, and I've already been speaking from throughout this morning, is a book called When the Church Was a Family. And in that he writes, uh, the author, Joseph Hellerman, he writes this. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. I'm not going to say anything else more important than what I just said. So I'm going to say it again. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of a genuine progress in the Christian life. What he's saying is, if you want to grow into the way of Jesus, the most important thing for you to do is to have a lot of people who know you for a very long time in the church. It's the best way. He goes on, the New Testament picture of the church as a family flies in the face of our individualistic cultural orientation. God's intention isn't to become the feel-good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith is yet another avenue toward personal enlightenment. Nor is the biblical Jesus to be conceived of as some sort of spiritual mentor who we can happily take from church to church, from marriage to marriage, fully assured that our personal Savior will somehow bless and redeem our destructive relational choices every step of the way. What Hellerman's saying is, is you and I, if we want to grow in Christ, we need to be surrounded by the same people for a long time. But we have so many things working against that. So many things that, that cause us to, rather than in moments of great pain, to enter in and grow and, and, and join the crucible of long-term interpersonal relationship. And instead, we take our own personal Jesus from church to church, from community to community. And now, given digital online communities, you don't even have to have an embodied community to have the sense of there are people around me that are helping me into the way of Jesus when they're not. My, I guarantee you, yeah, like if, if you like reading books, you've already read enough books to change your life. You don't need another book. You've read too many already. You've forgotten everything they told you, <laughs> and you're not doing it. You don't need another podcast. You don't need um, another conference. You don't need a new piece of information. You have too much already. What you need is the same group of people around you for a very long time. You need people who know you for a very long time, and still call you brother or sister and mean it. And it's not just because you and I need that to, to actually be changed into the way of Jesus. We need that because that's the only way anyone's ever going to come to Christ. So if, if I was to ask you, what does Jesus think is your most important mark of your discipleship? Think, that, think on that for a second. I'm going to give you the answer, but... Jesus, if Jesus were, to, were here right now, and he is not in the physical body, but he is present now, 
What is his burden for you as his disciple? And he, he said it right before he went to the cross to his own disciples about what he wanted them to be. He said this, John 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If we want to convince people of the truth of Jesus Christ, it's how we love one another. That's it. Everything else will not be enough. But a community of siblings, a community of family committed to love one another is the evidence of the truth of Jesus. And Jesus says something else in Luke 6.32 when he basically he was describing people who only love people who are like them. And he said, he said, what credit is that to you? Everyone does that. Sinners love people that are just like them. Every human being does that. That, is not, that does not credit you anything. What credits you something is when you love people that you shouldn't. When you, when you call someone brother or sister that you shouldn't. But you may be sitting there thinking, okay, Tim, I agree with you, but I mean, let's look around the room. There's some weird people in this room. It's okay, you can laugh because you're one of them. How can I call the weird people in this room brother or sister? Have you seen what they posted? Do you know what they think about Anthony Fauci? Do you know what they, whatever, whatever the thing is. Well, I'll just say, if you can't call everyone in this room brother or sister, you have a problem on your hands. One of the most confusing passages in all of the Bible, it's in Hebrews 2, and I have no idea what most of is being talked about in that, uh, in that passage, so I'm not going to try to explain it, except for one line, which is just should blow us away. He's talking about Jesus, and again, lots of things are said. I'm not going to try to explain them. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, one source. That is why he, Jesus, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, the church, Adelphoi, siblings, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, his brother or his sister. So if, if you're, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, I don't know if I can live in a church with um, calling everyone brothers and sisters. Well, that's Jesus. That's, who, that's, that's his interest. Going back to our question, what is he interested in? He's interested in calling all of you brother and sister. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that he looks at all of us who are in the way of Jesus and calls us Adelphoi, sibling, brother, sister. And for me, if it's good enough for Jesus to call you his brother or sister, it's good enough for me. Father, this world so desperately needs a family of very strange, different, weird people who are committed to presence with one another, who, who find joy in that space and then lead out lives of sacrificial risk, tethered to the interest of Jesus. Our world needs that so, so, so desperately. And we want to be that. We want to be that as a community. Um, but we are, we are broken. We are, we are flawed in our pursuit of that. And so we come now to your table and we're reminded the reason Jesus can call us his siblings is because his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. For all of the things we do to break down community, Jesus literally went to a cross to give his life to make this family possible. So enter our hearts with that gospel now as we, as we practice it together through communion. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.